Well, it's good to be here this morning. It's good to have all of you here today. It's always good. As uh, Don said, coming out of COVID, it takes longer than you might think. Just when you think you're, if you've all had it, I mean, almost everybody's had it now. When you, when you come through it, you think, okay, I'm at the end. And then, no, you're not. And so <clears throat> the biggest issue for me is just not being able to sleep. So I will do my best through the power of the Spirit to wrangle up some energy, and, uh, and we'll get through this message together. It'll be fun, I think. Maybe challenging for some, but it'll be good. So we have been going through <clears throat> our five doctrinal distinctives that we have as a Calvary family of churches. And it's these distinctives that formulate all that we do as a church. They are the foundation of who we are. Um, why we do what we do, why we exist as a church family. They unify us as a family of at least 30 churches. So if you're new here and you're not familiar with the Calvary family of churches, it is a, a group of 30 churches or more that have been planted or replanted, um, dying congregations, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, that are all around Colorado, there's California, Oklahoma, Idaho, Nebraska, everywhere. So in growing... As we speak, you know, Matt, our former pastor, who's now in Monta Vista, is also a part of our Calvary family, and he replanted this church here a little over seven years ago. So it's these distinctives that we all are unified together on. And to be honest, you know, you might think, well, that seems kind of boring to talk about just these distinctives, but it's what gets me excited as a pastor. It's what helps me study when I'm tired and weak. It's what drives me to know more about Christ and my call to serve Him. So it was my hope that this has been a good series for all of you, too. You know, we have never, as far as I know, in the three and a half years that I've been here, gone through these distinctives in detail. So let's review them again, just so that we can keep in mind what it is that we have gone through over the last several weeks. The first one of our distinctives is that we are passionate about gospel centrality. The saving gospel of Jesus Christ must be central to everything we do. If it wasn't for the gospel, we wouldn't exist as a church. <clears throat> we know we cannot save ourselves. Only Christ can save us. The truth of Jesus' birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, the death-defeating power of his bodily resurrection, his ascension to sit at his Father's right hand as our advocate, and the hope of his return is why we meet together to worship Jesus. It is, it is everything. It is everything. The second of our distinctives is that we embrace the sovereignty of God's grace in saving sinners. It is God's amazing grace that draws us to himself and is the faith that he gives us as his gift that allows us to believe in Jesus' works to save us. None of us deserve God's grace, which is the point. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. God alone is the one who chooses whom he will save. The invitation is open to everyone who will believe. The third one is that we rest upon the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit for life and ministry. The Holy Spirit is given to each of us as believers in Christ who are saved by God's wonderful grace that we just talked about. It is the Spirit who convicts people of their sins. It is the Spirit that empowers us to do the good works 
that God has given to us since before the foundation of the world. He is a person as the third person of the Holy Trinity with a personality who teaches about Jesus. As we will see in our message today, without him in us, we cannot do anything for the kingdom of God. The Spirit uniquely gifts each one of us to fulfill God's purpose in our lives so that the body of the church will be unified and complete, where Christ himself is the head. The fourth one that we looked at last week in the park is that we are committed to the fundamental spiritual and moral equality of male and female and to men as responsible servant leaders in the home and in the church. And as we saw last week, men and women are created by God to be equal, complementary partners in God's kingdom. God has given men and women gifts that are unique to their gender and bring unity to the church. Men are called since the creation of Adam to be responsible servant leaders of their wives, to raise their wives and give them a proper voice and to not be domineering, but to shepherd their wives as Christ shepherds us as his sheep. It is a wonderful partnership that God has called us to that when done correctly and with love brings God great glory. Today, our fifth and final distinctive is that we embrace a missionary understanding of the local church and its role as the primary means by which God chooses to establish his kingdom on earth. <clears throat> to really grasp what this means, we're going to look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which many of you know as the Great Commission. And I know there have been thousands, if not millions, of sermons on this passage. So I'm not going to try and bring any new thoughts or truths out regarding Jesus' call to us to make disciples. But I do want us to understand what he is calling us as the church to do. This message works as the perfect bridge between the five distinctives series and the new series that we're going to start next week in the book of Acts. These are Jesus' final words in the book of Matthew. And we'll have two points that we'll look at today. The first one we'll look at is Christ's authority and what does that mean? And two, what is our mission and how do we fulfill it? So let's read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and then we'll pray and get started. Starting in verse 18 of Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we just thank you, Lord, for who you are, for allowing us again to come into your presence. Lord, we come and we study this familiar passage to many of us. And uh, for those that are new here, that it will be a treat to hear what it is that Jesus says. Lord, I pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts to hear what it is that you have to say to us as a church. How do we do this mission? What is the mission? Who is called to the mission? Lord, and by whose authority do we do this mission? Lord, I just thank you for uh, the ability to come in and speak about this. I um, pray, God, that as I speak today, that it would be you that would speak through me. Um, we need your energy in the Holy Spirit today, Lord, and just ask that you will provide it. 
In Jesus' holy name, amen. So our first point of two is Christ, who has all the authority in heaven and on earth, has given us a mission. <clears throat> Reviewing verse 18, and Jesus, came to, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we see right away that from the mouth of our Savior, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what is this authority and what does it mean? Well, it means simply this, pretty much what it says. The risen Jesus was in command. He's in charge. Jesus has fulfilled the purpose he came to earth for, to save sinners, and now he was handing off the next task to his disciples, whom he has trained for three years. And ironically, the same word for authority is the same word we talked about last week that husbands have over their wives. But in this case, Jesus is saying that all the power to rule or govern has been given to him. In other words, his will and his will alone reigns over everything. We must submit in humble obedience to his authority. Now this, this is not a choice. One of the false narratives we see in our world today is that we can choose what we want to do and whom we want to listen to. Well, here's a news flash. If you've been in church any length of time in your life, you will know that's not true. <laughs> King Jesus and his authority override any authority you may think you have. His will be done in heaven and on earth, not ours. Every knee will bow before him one day. I guarantee you, nobody will bow their knee to you. Nobody will tremble in fear of you. But I guarantee you that we will tremble in holy reverent fear of Jesus when we see him. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see in this verse, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. At some point, your knee will bow to Jesus, and you will recognize him as the authority. And I will tell you this, it is better for you to recognize that he is in charge now then later, after you've passed away, then it is too late. So if you have not made a commitment to Christ, now is the time. Recognize him as he is in charge and you are not. You might think you are, but you are not. There's a song by Mercy Me that everybody knows. There was a movie about it, I can only imagine. And, it, and I love that song, to be honest. And it asks this question. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? While I sing hallelujah, will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Now, I love that song, as you could tell. 
it's difficult for me to actually read the words out loud without, I get emotional over everything, you know, but when I really speak about God, I get really emotional. But I have to tell you, I do not need to imagine what I will do when I come into the presence of our Savior. I will be full face, prostate on the ground. And I will get there as fast as humanly possible. Because we will come into the presence of the holy. And we will see him in his glory. First John 3 tells us that one day that we will see him as he really is. And we will be made like him. What a great promise that we have. But we don't need to worry about what we are going to do because we will recognize him as God, that he is king, that he is Lord. New Testament professor, easy for me to say, at Demer Seminary, Dr. Craig Blomberg, says this regarding the authority Christ has been given. Because of this authority, Jesus has the right to issue his followers their marching orders. But he also has the ability to help them carry out those orders. Now we'll see this ability to carry out these orders more as we go forward, but this brings us to our next question then. Who is Jesus giving this command to? Now first of all, we know that Jesus gave this mandate to the 11 disciples. We see that if you step back in the passage to verse 16. But this was not just a task for the disciples to do and then it was over. It is a command for each of us individually and collectively as a church body to do under Jesus' authority. Listen to what our directive says, which you can find on our website, calvarylahunta.org, under About Us, What We Believe. The church has a clear biblical mandate to look beyond its own community to the neighborhood, the nation, and the world as a whole. Thus, mission is not an optional program in the church but an essential element in the identity of the church. You see, the mission to go and take the good news out into the world is who we are. It's what we are. It's what we believe. If we don't, then why are we here? We all came here because somebody told us about Jesus, shared the good news with us, And the Holy Spirit convicted us that we needed a Savior. Showed us our sin. Brought us here to worship Him. Even when it isn't popular. Why would we not want to do the same for others? We need to. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary in China for 54 years in the 1800s, said these haunting words regarding the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Canadian pastor Oswald Smith said, and this this is really convicting, he says, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. That's harsh. That's harsh. But this is who we are. It's what we are. It's why we're here. If we don't do this, 
There's no purpose in us being here. We have forfeited our biblical right to exist. But, fortunately, in our church, just to bring us off the cross, our church is involved in mission work. We have missionaries in France, in Jessica Evans. We have missionaries in South Asia, in Haley and Ian Mack. We are planting a church in Los Animas. And we're thankful for Megan and for Dennis McDaniel and his family to come here all the way from Indiana to do this, to follow God's command to plant a church in a very difficult area. And we are committed to helping them. On the back here, it says right here, which our vision of our church is to make Jesus not ignorable in La Junta into the ends of the earth. Our mission that we talk about the last several weeks is that we glorify God by making joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. The Calvary family of churches, which we belong to, chose this as our vision and mission because it comes directly from Jesus' command to go and make disciples. And this brings us then to our second point. What is our mission and how do we fulfill it? We look at Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now we see that there are four specific things that we're to do out of this command. The first one is to go. The second one is to make disciples. The third one is to baptize. And the fourth is to teach. And we're going to look at each of them individually. The first command Jesus gives the disciples is to go. Now it's interesting for this reason. Next week when we start our study in the book of Acts and we look at chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus tells the disciples to not leave Jerusalem but to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come first. Now we'll talk more about this next week, but I just want to give us a heads up that Jesus is not contradicting himself with these two statements. In order for the disciples to go and be effective, they needed the presence and the power of the Spirit with them to plow the way forward, to prepare hearts, to open doors, and to give the disciples power and authority. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promises that he will be with his disciples to the end of the age. But in the end, we are called to go. For us to be effective, we obviously must first be sure of our standing with Jesus and the gospel itself. Are we certain that we are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone, and not by our own works? We must be certain of our salvation in order to be certain the Holy Spirit lives in us and is with us. Because without the Spirit, Jesus says that we must wait. And then the question comes up after that is, where do we go? Well, let's hear again. Let's read further into what our fifth distinctive tells us. Read that one more time. And he says, The church has a clear biblical mandate to look beyond its own community to the neighborhood, the nation, and the world as a whole. 
Thus, mission is not an optional program, but it's essential. Okay, so we're to go into our neighborhoods, our nation, and out into the far reaches of our world, including the very difficult places. Now, we don't have to go to Afghanistan or the rainforest in South America to find difficult places. There are difficult places right here in La Junta. Los Animas is a difficult place. You may not be aware of this, but Denver is a difficult place. I found a survey online. It's a little bit dated. It's from 2014. But I, I looked and tried to find one that was a little bit more updated, but I couldn't find one. But this is kind of an alarming statistic in regards to um, the number of unchurched people that are in the United States. And this includes, you know, the whole United States, including the Bible Belt, right? So 38% under Barna's definition of unchurched adults, and their definition is this, unchurched adults have not attended a church service except for a holiday or special occasion at any time within the past six months. So the only time they've ever gone is, if they've ever gone at all, is on a holiday or a special occasion. 38% of adults in the United States as of 2014 have not gone to church or stepped in a church in six months. That's a lot of people. When you consider the United States has over 300 million people, that is a lot of people. A lot of people. Now, um, it might not be uh, unsurprising to find out that the, the greatest area of unchurched people is found in the San Francisco Bay Area where the number of unchurched people is at 61%. 61%. Just so you know, Denver rates 18th at 44%. 44% of people in Denver don't attend church or haven't been in a church in six months. Where does Pueblo and Colorado Springs rank? They rank here at number 50, well, 50, yeah, 54. Colorado Springs, Pueblo, 35% of people in Colorado Springs and Pueblo don't attend church. It doesn't get down here into the valley, but you can imagine that even with the 8,000 people that are here, we know, I know a lot of the pastors in the area and their churches were not like huge. There might be one bigger church, the river, and, uh, and that's it. Everybody else is a small congregation of less than 50. That leaves a lot of people that are unchurched here in the valley. And Dennis, just so that you know, you know, where you came from there in Louisville, Kentucky, where they rank 91st. They're in the middle of the Bible Belt with a whopping 27%. Still too many people who don't attend church. So you see the point? There is a need to take the gospel out to a world that is hurting and dying and going to hell. This must move us in our hearts. So the takeaway from us is that we need to be willing to go. To go wherever God calls us to go. That could be next door to your neighbor. That could be to your kids' schools. It could be in France where Jessica is or South Asia, where Haley and Ian are. It could be anywhere. But we are all called to go 
somewhere. So this is what we all need to be praying. I want you to be thinking about this. I wrote this out, and this is a prayer that I think we should all be praying if we're not already. We ask God this, God, where do you want me to go? Open my eyes to see where you want me to go. Open my heart to hear the cries of those who need Jesus where it is you want me to go. Give me a burden for the lost, the hurting, the unchurched. Give me the unwavering passion to reach them. But Lord, where am I supposed to go? I know I'm supposed to go somewhere. That is a prayer I guarantee you God will answer in His time according to His perfect will. And then when God answers your prayer, you must go. You must go. Again, that doesn't mean all of us are going to leave La Junta, but some of us will. It's a fact. It's a fact. And the second thing that we are called to do in this command is we're called to make disciples. And this is the main verb, the main command. Surprisingly, it is not that we are to go, but we must go in order to be able to fulfill the command to make disciples. Notice that we are not called to save people but, or make converts. Only Jesus can save people. Only Jesus knows whom he has called to himself. We don't know the number of the elect. We have to assume everyone is. We teach and preach to everyone and leave it up to Jesus to save his people. That is my philosophy of preaching. I preach to everyone as if you are all lost and need Christ and called by him to come to him. Because I don't know who of you are or are not Christians. Really. I know that who says they are, but I can't really know your heart. You can't really know mine. But we can look at ourselves and we can see that there are things and signs in us that show us who is really a Christian. But that's another sermon for another day. That would get us way off track. Most of us would know, most of us know and would agree that we are called to make disciples. Which raises the question then, well, what is a disciple then? What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of someone in their teachings, a learner. In ancient Israel, young men who wanted to be rabbis would go find a rabbi they liked and would follow them around day and night. They would, they would learn from them how they taught, how they prayed, how they dealt with people really in all ways of their lives, how they studied scripture. They wanted to be just like that rabbi so that one day, years later after following him around, they would one day be a rabbi just like him. It sounds similar to the disciples of Jesus who were with him for three years, day and night, following him, watching him, listening to him because one day they were going to be like him and take the message and teachings of Jesus out into the world. And now they are. Except 
one major difference. Jesus chose his followers. They didn't choose him. You see the difference? Jesus calls his disciples to himself. Like we are called to do now. Discipleship is not just learning biblical facts, but that is so important to understand and learn about God through the Scriptures. Who He is. Who is this God you follow? Don't you want to know? Is there no curiosity in you to find out who is this God who holds your salvation in His own hand? Why would He go to the cross? Why would He send His Son what is the Trinity? Why would He love you when you hated Him so much that you didn't want to have anything to do with Him? This is a God we should, in all of our being, want to know. In being a disciple, we should be in His Word and praying to Him in asking Him to show us who He is. And then we get so excited by what we know, we have to vomit it out of our mouth to other people so they can know, even to the point of being annoying. That's what we do. Because we love people. We see their lostness. We see them suffering there in their unbelief, wallowing about trying to find their way in this wicked world alone. When we have the answer to their problems in Christ Jesus, we can share what Christ has done for us in our testimony. If you are a believer, you have a story to tell. Thank you, Blanca, for sharing your story with the ladies yesterday. I heard it was amazing. I wish I would have been there. But thank you for sharing. That's how we grow. We learn from each other. And we tell others. Not because we have to. Because it's our passion to want to. It's what Christ has created us to do. It's a relationship discipleship is. Getting together with other men and women. Having coffee together. Talking about what God has done for you. What He's showing you in His Word. Praying together. Spurring each other on to greater things. Challenging each other in your thinking. Learning and teaching each other about Christ and who He is. Making a list together of people that you know are lost that you're going to go visit with the goal to share the gospel with. This is discipleship. This is what being a disciple is. A follower of Jesus. Following His commands and doing them. What an, what an amazing thing. Obedience. One way that we do this as a Calvary family, is that we plant and replant churches. This is what our distinctive tells us. Another part of it. We are called to make Christ known through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring His Lordship to bear on every dimension of life. 
And the primary way that we fulfill this mission is through the planting of churches that plant churches. You see, we plant regenerating churches, just like we make disciples who make disciples. We plant churches that plant churches. And then we restart declining congregations, and then we train their leaders. Our aim is that Jesus Christ would be more fully formed in each person through the ministry of those churches God enables us to plant and restart in Colorado and around the world. This church in and of itself, as I mentioned earlier, was replanted by Matt and Betsy, and now we're planting a church in Los Animas. And one day, Los Animas will plant its own church. And we will plant another church. Churches are the, th- are the ones that create disciples. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. through 5. For those of us who are pastors, we know this passage very well. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, tells Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Paul is giving Timothy a command, an imperative in front of God the Father and Jesus Christ to preach the Word. This is not an option for Timothy to do. It is a directed command with the authority of Jesus behind it. Paul is telling Timothy to be a herald, to be a proclaimer of the Gospel with passion and with faith and with the power of and authority of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Timothy to always be on the ready. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter whether you're feeling close to the Lord or distant from the Lord, in season or out of season, be ready to preach. But to preach what? The Word of God. The Gospel. That's what we are to preach. Not my opinion. Not the sports page. Not the funny papers. Not the latest joke on Facebook. The Word of God is what we are to preach. And we will hear. As long as I am the pastor. And I hope long after that. Just as we did when Matt was here. There's three things that Paul tells Timothy to do in his preaching. And one is to reprove, which means to speak with conviction and to bring sin to light, to expose false teaching. And the second one is to rebuke, which is similar, again meaning to correct false teaching and bad doctrine. And the third one is to exhort. This is the fun part, bringing the truth to light. Teach and make much of Jesus 
with passion and compassion. And Timothy was called to do this with patience and with sound teaching, which means that not everyone should be here preaching the Word of God. You must be prepared and ready. You must be studied. You must know the Word to preach the Word. Now look around this room. Maybe one of you one day will be here standing in a pulpit preaching the Word of God. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Learn about what God has to say. As Paul points out, there is false teaching out there that is not teaching about sin and the need of repentance. And people are following this hollow teaching. We can see that today all around us with all kinds of false teaching, even here in the valley. We hear of the prosperity gospel that teaches that if we give God something, that He will bless us with riches. False. Not true at all. We know the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Catholics, and even some Charismatics that are teaching that we must speak in tongues in order to be saved. That is false. We cannot earn our way to heaven with any work at all. It is not based on us, but on Christ alone. Any teaching that adds works of any kind is a false gospel and must be exposed as a lie in the true gospel of salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, must be proclaimed. We do that most effectively in churches. Churches are not out of vogue. They never will be. We may see smaller churches and smaller congregations and not as many megachurches in the future, but the church will continue as the bride of Christ. It is in churches that we teach about the sacraments of the faith, baptism, and the taking of the Lord's Supper. Which brings us to the third one that we're supposed to do, is baptism. We here at Calvary teach a believer's baptism with full immersion. We teach that because this is what we believe the Scriptures teach us regarding baptism. Now, we don't have a lot of time to really get into this. That's another sermon of its own. But here I want to read what the Southern Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says about baptism because it really sums it up well. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith and to the final resurrection of the dead. You see, it is a symbol of a believer's new life in Christ. Baptism will not save you. It will not save you. It is a symbol. Your old life is dead and your new life has begun. It is your public proclamation of what you believe. Now, <coughs> excuse me, we don't baptize infants because an infant cannot understand that they are in a sinner in need of a Savior yet. So they cannot be a believer. So we cannot baptize them. We are called to baptize believers. Those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. 
And we baptize them in the name of the Holy Trinity, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a sign of the unifying nature of faith in Christ as a new creation. So if anyone is here this morning and you would like to talk to me more about baptism, I would love to talk to you more about it, what it means, you know, why we do it, when we do it, and so forth. Maybe you've never been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. If you want to be baptized, come and see me after service, and we'll, we'll set up a time to go and talk about it. And the fourth thing that we're supposed to do in this command to make disciples is to teach obedience. All of the knowledge in the world does nobody any good if you don't do and obey what Jesus tells you to do. That's what observing means. We are to teach all of the scripture, not just the parts that make us feel good. We are to teach the hard parts too. To be a true disciple of Jesus is to obey everything he teaches, to guard your heart against false doctrine and teachings that are contrary to the Bible, which means again that we're to study the Bible, to be involved in small groups and go deeper than you do in your daily reading, to get with a pastor or a mentor with whom you can ask questions and hopefully get answers and be shown ways that you yourself can find the answer. You know, when somebody did that with me, and the very first time I had a question, and I learned how to study the scriptures to where I could go find it myself, when I had that first discovery of truth on my own, when the Holy Spirit showed me, it was like, wow! We want to teach you how to do the same thing, so that you can teach others how to do that. We're to be learners and sharers of how to study the Word of God. Believe me, believe me, I was the master of dumb questions. But there are no dumb questions. There are no dumb questions. So I urge you to get with each other in small groups of maybe three or less and go have coffee, discuss what God is teaching you, pray together, and study God's Word together. It is not difficult to do. You can do it. Each of you as a believer has the Holy Spirit in you who will help open the Scriptures to you. If you get to a place where you don't know what to do or you don't have an answer and you need a question answered, write it down and send it to me or to Dennis or anyone whom you trust to know the Bible. Don, anyone. We also need to learn how to pray together as a church, as well as individually at home. We need to pray for each other. It is essential for all of us. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 reminds us of this great thing that encourages us. I want us to hear what Peter says to you through this word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
We have been called out by God out of the world and its sinful destruction to be his people. A chosen race, chosen by the King of kings and Lord of lords. If that does not get you excited, I don't know what will. He chose you. And that doesn't have anything to do with your gender, or whether you're rich or poor, or whether you're a Jew or Gentile. You are called to be children of the King. His possession to proclaim the good news of the Gospel in Christ in obedience to the call you have upon your life to go and make disciples. You once lived in darkness, but God in His grace and mercy has yanked you out of the darkness and into the light. I tell people that I used to live in the shadow of the cross, but now I live in the light of the cross. And there is a much different view from the shadow and then the light. Sometimes we forget that people still live in the shadow. But there are many people living in the shadow who need to come into the light. Do we not owe it to Jesus who gave himself for us to be fully dependent and obedient to him? To be fully obedient to him in everything. How we spend and give our money. How we live our lives. How we are to speak to one another. And what we are to watch and allow our minds to be filled with? Shouldn't we have a deep concern and a passion for the lost? Because if you don't, let me ask you, how real is heaven to you? Do you really, honestly believe there is a heaven? Do you? Then, do you really believe in hell? Do you really believe that there is a place called hell? Is it real? Because if you say you believe in both of them, then it is, you better have a greater compassion for those who don't believe in Christ. Believing in heaven and hell should, especially hell, but also the promise of heaven should drive us to those that are around us who don't know Jesus, to be on our knees for them. Let me ask you, do you have a list of unbelievers that you know in your life, family members, friends, co-workers, whoever, that you regularly go through and pray for their salvation, that you cry out their name to God and beg Him to save them and leave that into His hands? You may not be the herald who goes and proclaims the gospel to them that God will use to save them, but he will hear your prayers for sure. This is our heart as believers. We must have a passion for the lost and those whom God has put in our lives. None of this is easy. All of it is hard. And there's a lot of suffering, but there's also a lot of joy. I can tell you that I've been blessed in my life to have many people come to Christ in front of me. To see them go from death to life. I had nothing to do with it other than I obeyed God's call to share the gospel with them. 
I had nothing to do with them changing from death to life. But I will tell you this, you could not give me enough money to make me feel as much joy in my life as to watch somebody's heart change right before me. That is the greatest feeling in the world. So much so that you want to have it all the time. If you have never experienced that in your life, then ask God to allow you to lead someone to Him and see what He does. Jesus said, I know it's hard, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. God promised Joshua this in Joshua 1.5. He said, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. At the end of Hebrews 13.5, it says, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can know this because the Holy Spirit lives in every believer in Jesus. It is a promise that God will never break because as we've said many times, we know that God cannot lie. So when it becomes difficult to go and make disciples, when it is difficult to come to church, when you know you want to share the gospel uh, with your friend or family member, but you don't want to have the blowback, when you want to give up, when you want to quit, when you doubt and you just say enough is enough, remember, Jesus is always with you. And because he is always with you, you can and you must endure to the end. And then you'll be called his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, we thank you, Lord, for the Great Commission, Lord, the, the call that we have to go and make disciples of all nations, Lord. We pray, Father, that we are obedient to your call. We pray, Father, that for each of us here this morning, that we all would, if we don't have it, that we would, that we would have, we would, excuse me, gain a passion for the lost. That we would understand what it means to be lost and that the reality of what it means to be in hell. That we would be on our knees begging you, Lord, to save those that are around us. To give us opportunities to share your word with them. And Lord, that you would open their hearts and allow us to lead them to you. We know, Lord, that we do nothing in the process except be obedient and share. You are the one who saves. You are the one who helps us make disciples, to teach them your ways, to share with them how you've changed our lives. To spur each other on to greater things by being excited to share about what it is you're teaching us through the scriptures. How you've answered our prayers. People we've seen come to know you. The work that you're doing around the world. Lord, help us to have a passion for you. And a hunger and a thirst for you. And a desire to share you 
with others. I want this to be a church, Lord, that glorifies you in that way, that we would be mission-minded. We would not be inclusive, but we would be out there sharing the gospel message with those who need to hear it. That our doors would be open to whoever comes and wants to hear your word. I pray, God, that this would be our passion. Father God, I just ask for your will to be done here. I pray, God, that you would help us to grow in number, but also in depth. Lord, I pray for Los Animas. As we plan to get that church started soon, Lord, I pray, God, that you would continue to gather your people together whom you've already called to be a part of that church body. Lord, we know that in Los Animas there are places there where there are are numerous lost people wallowing around in drug abuse and poverty and, and just have no hope because no one goes there to share the gospel with them. And I pray, God, and thanks for Dennis and Megan and their family for their hunger and their love for these people and their desire to see them come to know you. I pray, God, that you bless them in mighty and powerful ways. That they would sense your presence, Lord, even when it looks like they want to give up because nothing seems to be happening. We know, Lord, that behind the scenes, you are working. Help them to endure, Lord. Help us to help them. Help us to pray for them. But Father, again, we are just grateful for this morning and for you. And I pray, God, that through this message, Lord, that all of us would see ourselves as missionaries in your service. In Jesus' name, amen.